Chapter Twelve of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Shantarowong. A New England Girlhood, outlined from memory by Lucy Larcom. Chapter Twelve. From the Merrimack to the Mississippi. The years between 1835 and 1845, which nearly covered the time I lived at Lowell, seemed to me, as I look back at them, singularly interesting years. People were guessing and experimenting and wondering and prophesying about a great many things. Almost everything. We were only beginning to get accustomed to steamboats and railroads. To travel by either was scarcely less an adventure to us younger ones than going up in a balloon. Phrenology was much talked about and numerous professors of it came around lecturing and examining heads and making charts of cranial bumps. This was profitable business to them for a while, as almost everybody who invested in a character received a good one, while many very commonplace people were flattered into the belief that they were geniuses, or might be if they chose. Mesmerism followed close upon phrenology, and this too had its lecturers, who entertained the stronger portion of their audiences by showing them how easily the weaker ones could be brought under an uncanny influence. The most widespread delusion of the time was Millerism. A great many persons, and yet not so many that I knew even one of them, believed that the end of the world was coming in the year 1842, though the date was postponed from year to year as the prophecy failed of fulfillment. The idea in itself was almost too serious to be jested about, and yet its advocates made it so literal a matter that it did look very ridiculous to unbelievers. An irreverent little workmate of mine in the spinning-room made a string of jingling couplets about it, like this. Oh dear, oh dear, what shall we do in eighteen hundred and forty-two? Oh dear, oh dear, where shall we be in eighteen hundred and forty-three? Oh dear, oh dear, we shall be no more in eighteen hundred and forty-four. Oh dear, oh dear, we shan't be alive in eighteen hundred and forty-five. I thought it audacious of her, since surely she and all of us were aware that the world would come to an end sometime, in some way, for every one of us. I said to myself that I could not have made up those rhymes. Nevertheless, we all laughed at them together. A comet appeared at about the time of the Miller excitement, and also a very unusual illumination of sky and earth by the aurora borealis. This latter occurred in midwinter. The whole heavens were of a deep rose color, almost crimson, reddest at the zenith, and paling as it radiated towards the horizon. The snow was fresh on the ground, and that, too, was of a brilliant red. Cold as it was, windows were thrown up all around us for people to look out at the wonderful sight. I was gazing with the rest, and listening to exclamations of wonder from surrounding unseen beholders, when somebody shouted from far down the opposite block of buildings with startling effect, "'You can't stand the fire in that great day!' It was the refrain of a Millerite hymn. The Millerites believed that these signs in the sky were omens of the approaching catastrophe, and it was said that some of them did go so far as to put on white ascension robes, and assemble somewhere to wait for the expected hour. When daguerreotypes were first made, when we heard that the sun was going to take everybody's portrait, it seemed almost too great a marvel to be believed. While it was yet only a rumor that such a thing had been done, somewhere across the sea I saw some verses about it which impressed me much but which I only partially remember. These were the opening lines. Oh, what if thus our evil deeds are mirrored on the sky, and every line of our wild lives daguerreotyped on high? 
My sister and I considered it quite an event when we went to have our daguerreotypes taken just before we started for the West. The photograph was still an undeveloped mystery. Things that looked miraculous then are commonplace now. It almost seems as if the children of today could not have so good a time as we did. Science has left them so little to wonder about. Our attitude, the attitude of the time, was that of children climbing their dooryard fence to watch an approaching show, and to conjecture what more remarkable spectacle could be following behind. New England had kept to the quiet old-fashioned ways of living for the first fifty years of the Republic. Now all was expectancy, changes were coming, things were going to happen, nobody could guess what. Things have happened and changes have come. The New England that has grown up with the last fifty years is not at all the New England that our fathers knew. We speak of having been reared under Puritanic influences, but the traditionary sternness of these was much modified even in the childhood of the generation to which I belong. We did not recognize the grim features of the Puritan, as we used to sometimes read about him, in our parents or relatives, and yet we were children of the Puritans. Everything that was new or strange came to us at Lowell, and most of the remarkable people of the day came also. How strange it was to see Mar Johannan, a Nestorian bishop, walking through the factory yard in his oriental robes, with more than a child's wonder on his face, at the stir and rush of everything. He came from Boston by railroad, and was present at the wedding at the clergyman's house where he visited. The rapidity of the simple congregational service astonished him. What? Mary on railroad, too? he asked. Dickens visited Lowell while I was there, and gave a good report of what he saw in his American notes. We did not leave work even to gaze at distinguished strangers, so I missed seeing him. But a friend who did see him sketched his profile and pencil for me to see as he passed along the street. He was then best known as Boz. Many of the prominent men of the country were in the habit of giving lyceum lectures, and the lyceum lecture of that day was a mean of education conveying to the people the results of study and thought through the best minds. At Lowell, it was more patronized by the mill people than any mere entertainment. We had John Quincy Adams, Edward Everett, John Pierpont, and Ralph Waldo Emerson among our lecturers, with numerous distinguished clergymen of the day. Daniel Webster was once in the city, trying a law case. Some of my girlfriends went to the courtroom and had a glimpse of his face, but I just missed seeing him. Sometimes an Englishman, who was studying our national institutions, would call and have a friendly talk with us at work. Sometimes it was a traveler from the South who was interested in some way. I remember one, an editor and author from Georgia, who visited our improvement circle, and who sent some of us offering contributors copies of his book after he had returned home. One of the pleasantest visitors that I recall was a young Quaker woman from Philadelphia, a schoolteacher who came to see for herself how the Lowell girls lived, of whom she had heard so much. A deep, quiet friendship grew up between us two. I wrote some verses for her when we parted, and she sent me one cordial, charmingly written letter. In a few weeks I answered it, but the response was from another person, a near relative. She was dead. But she still remains a real person to me. I often recall her features and the tone of her voice. It was as if a beautiful spirit from an invisible world had slipped in among us and quickly gone back again. It was an event to me, and to my immediate friends among the mill girls, when the poet Whittier came to Lowell to stay a while. I had not even supposed that it would be my good fortune to meet him, but one evening, when we assembled at the improvement circle, he was there. 
The offering editor, Miss Harriet Farley, had lived in the same town with him, and they were old acquaintances. It was a warm summer evening. I recall the circumstance that a number of us wore white dresses, also that I shrank back into myself and felt much abashed when some verses of mine were read by the editor, with others so much better, however, that mine received little attention. I felt relieved, for I was not fond of having my productions spoken of, for good or ill. He commended quite highly a poem by another member of the circle, on Pentucket, the Indian name of his native place, Haverhill. My subject was Sabbath bells. As the friends do not believe in steeple-houses, I was at liberty to imagine that it was my theme, and not my verses, that failed to interest him. Various other papers were read, stories, sketches, etc., and after the reading there was a little conversation, when he came and spoke to me. I let the friend who had accompanied me do my part of the talking, for I was too much overawed by the presence of one whose poetry I had so long admired to say a great deal. But from that evening we knew each other as friends, and of course the day has a white mark among memories of my Lowell life. Mr. Whittier's visit to Lowell had some political bearing upon the anti-slavery cause. It is strange now to think that a cause like that should not always have been our country's cause, our country, our own free nation. But anti-slavery sentiments were then regarded by many as traitorous heresies, and those who held them did not expect to win popularity. If the vote of the mill girls had been taken, it would doubtless have been unanimous on the anti-slavery side. But those were also the days when a woman was not expected to give, or even to have, an opinion on subjects of public interest. Occasionally, a young girl was attracted to the Lowell Mills through her own idealization of the life there, as it had been reported to her. Margaret Foley, who afterwards became distinguished as a sculptor, was one of these. She did not remain many months at her occupation, which I think was weaving, soon changing it for that of teaching and studying art. Those who came as she did were usually disappointed. Instead of an Arcadia, they found a place of matter-of-fact toil, filled with a company of industrious, wide-awake girls, who were faithfully improving their opportunities, while looking through them into avenues towards profit and usefulness, more desirable yet. It has always been the way of the steady-minded New Englander to accept the present situation, but to accept it without boundaries, taking in also the larger prospects, all the heavens above and the earth beneath, towards which it opens. The movement of New England girls towards Lowell was only an impulse of a larger movement which about that time sent so many people from the eastern states into the West. The needs of the West were constantly kept before us in the churches. We were asked for contributions for home missions, which were willingly given, and some of us were appointed collectors of funds for the education of indigent young men to become Western home missionary preachers. There was something almost pathetic in the readiness with which this was done by young girls who were longing to fit themselves for teachers, but had not the means. Many a girl at Lowell was working to send her brother to college who had far more talent and character than he. But a man could preach, and it was not orthodox to think that a woman could, and in her devotion to him and her zeal for the spread of Christian truth she was hardly conscious of her own sacrifice. Yet our ministers appreciated the intelligence and piety of their feminine parishioners. An agent who came from the West for school teachers was told by our own pastor that five hundred could easily be furnished from among Lowell Mill girls. Many did go, and they made another New England in some of our Western states. The missionary spirit was strong among my companions. I never thought that I had the right qualifications for that work.
but i had a desire to see the prairies and the great rivers of the west and to get a taste of free primitive life among pioneers before the year eighteen forty five several of my friends had emigrated as teachers or missionaries one of the editors of the operatives magazine had gone to arkansas with a mill girl who had worked beside her among the looms they were at an indian mission to the cherokees and choctaws i seemed to breathe the air of that far southwest in a spray of yellow jasmine which one of those friends sent me pressed in a letter people wrote very long letters then in those days of twenty-five cent postage rachel at whose house our german class had been accustomed to meet had also left her work and had gone to western virginia to take charge of a school she wrote alluring letters to us about the scenery there it was in the neighborhood of the natural bridge my friend angeline with whom i used to read paradise lost went to ohio as a teacher and returned the following year for a very brief visit however and with a husband another acquaintance was in wisconsin teaching a pioneer school eliza my intimate companion was about to be married to a clergyman she too eventually settled at the west the event which brought most change into my own life was the marriage of my sister emily it involved the breaking up of our own little family of which she had really been the house band the return of my mother to my sisters at beverly and my going to board among strangers as other girls did i found excellent quarters and kind friends but the home life was ended my sister's husband was a grammar school master in the city and their cottage a mile or more out among the open fields was my frequent refuge from homesickness and the general clatter our partial separation showed me how much i had depended on my sister i had really let her do most of my thinking for me henceforth i was to trust to my own resources i was no longer the little sister who could ask what to do and do as she was told it often brought me a feeling of dismay to find that i must make up my own mind about things small and great and yet i was naturally self-reliant i am not sure but self-reliance and dependence really belong together they do seem to meet in the same character like other extremes the health of emily's husband failing after a year or two it was evident that he must change his employment and his residence he decided to go with his brother to illinois and settle upon a prairie farm of course his wife and baby boy must go too and with the announcement of this decision came an invitation to me to accompany them i had no difficulty as to my response it was just what i wanted to do i was to teach a district school but what there was beyond that i could not guess i liked to feel that it was all as vague as the unexplored regions to which i was going my friend and roommate sarah who was preparing herself to be a teacher was invited to join us and she was glad to do so it was all quickly settled and early in the spring of eighteen forty six we left new england when i came to a realization of what i was leaving when good-byes had to be said i began to feel very sorrowful and to wish it was not to be i said positively that i should soon return but underneath my protestations i was afraid that i might not the west was very far off then a full week's journey it would be hard getting back those i loved might die i might die myself these thoughts passed through my mind though not through my lips my eyes would sometimes tell the story however and I fancy that my tearful farewells must have seemed ridiculous to many of my friends, since my going was of my own cheerful choice. The last meeting of the improvement circle before I went away was a kind of surprise party to me. Several original poems were read, addressed to me personally. 
I am afraid that I received it all in a dumb, undemonstrative way, for I could not make it seem real that I was the person meant, or that I was going away at all. But I treasured those tributes of sympathy afterwards, under the strange, spacious skies where I sometimes felt so alone. The editors of the offering left me with a testimonial in money, accompanied by an acknowledgment of my contributions during several years. But I had never dreamed of pay, and did not know how to look upon it so. I took it gratefully, however, as a token of their appreciation, and twenty dollars was no small help towards my outfit. Friends brought me books and other keepsakes. Our minister gave me de Ogbin's History of the Reformation as a parting gift. It was quite a circumstance to be going out west. The exhilaration of starting off one's first long journey, young, ignorant, buoyant, expectant, is unlike anything else, unless it be youth itself, the real beginning of the real journey, life. Annoyances are overlooked. Everything seems romantic and dreamlike. We went by a southerly route. On account of starting so early in the season, there was snow on the ground the day we left. On the second day, after a moonlight night on Long Island Sound, we were floating down the Delaware, between shores of misty green with budding willows. Then, most of us seasick, though I was not, we were tossed across Chesapeake Bay. Then there was a railway ride to the Alleghenies, which gave us glimpses of the Potomac and the Blue Ridge, and of the lovely scenery around Harper's Ferry. Then followed a stifling night on the mountains, when we were packed like sardines into a stagecoach, without a breath of air, and the passengers were cross because the baby cried, while I felt inwardly glad that one voice among us could give utterance to the general discomfort, my own part of which I could have borne if I could only have had an occasional peep out at the mountainside. After that it was all river voyaging, down the Monongalahela, into the Ohio, and up the Mississippi. As I recall this part of it, I should say that it was the perfection of a western journey to travel in early spring by an Ohio River steamboat, such steamboats as they had forty years ago, comfortable, roomy, and well-ordered. The company was social, as western emigrants were wont to be when there were not so many of them, and the shores of the river, then only thinly populated, were a constantly shifting panorama of wilderness beauty. I have never since seen a combination of spring colors so delicate as those shown by the uplifted forests of the Ohio, where the pure white of the dogwood and the peach-bloom tint of the redbud, Judas tree, were contrasted with the soft shades of green, almost endlessly various on the unfolding leafage. Contrasted with the Ohio, the Mississippi had nothing to show but breath and muddiness. More than one of us glanced at its level shores, edged with a monotonous growth of cottonwood, and sent back a sigh towards the banks of the Merrimack. But we did not let each other know what the sigh was for, until long after. The breaking up of our little company when the steamboat landed at St. Louis was like the ending of a pleasant dream. We had to wake up to the fact that by striking due east thirty or forty miles across that monotonous greenness, we should reach our destination, and must accept whatever we should find there, with such grace as we could. What we did find, and did not find, there is not room fully to relate here. Ours was at first the roughest kind of pioneering experience, such as persons brought up in our well-to-do New England could not be in the least prepared for, though they might imagine they were, as we did. We were dropped down finally upon a vast green expanse, extending hundreds of miles north and south through the state of Illinois, then known as Looking Glass Prairie. The nearest cabin to our own was about a mile away, and so small that at a distance it looked like a shingle set up endwise in the grass. 
Nothing else was in sight, not even a tree, although we could see miles and miles in every direction. There were only the hollow blue heavens above us and the green level prairie around us, an immensity of intense loneliness. We seldom saw a cloud in the sky, and never a pebble beneath our feet. If we could have picked up the commonest one, we should have treasured it like a diamond. Nothing in nature now seemed so beautiful to us as rocks. We had never dreamed of a world without them. It seemed like living on a floor without walls or foundations. After a while, we became accustomed to the vast sameness, and even liked it in a lukewarm way. And there were times when it filled us with emotions of grandeur. Boundlessness in itself is impressive. It makes us feel our littleness, and yet releases us from that littleness. The grass was always astir, blowing one way like the waves of the sea, for there was a steady, almost unvarying wind from the south. It was like the sea, and yet even more wonderful, for it was a sea of living and growing things. The Spirit of God was moving upon the face of the earth and breathing everything into life. We were but specks on the great landscape, but God was above it all, penetrating it and us with his great infinite warmth. The distance from human beings made the invisible one seem so near. Only nature and ourselves now, face to face with him. We could scarcely have found in all the world a more complete contrast to the moving crowds and the whir and dust of the city of spindles than this unpeopled silent prairie. For myself, I know that I was sent in upon my own thoughts deeper than I had ever been before. I began to question things which I had never before doubted. I must have reality. Nothing but transparent truth would bear the test of this great solitary stillness. As the prairies lay open to the sunshine, my heart seemed to lie bare beneath the piercing eye of the all-seeing. I may say with gratitude that only some superficial rubbish of acquired opinion was scorched away by this searching light and heat. The faith of my childhood, in its simplest elements, took firmer root as it found a broader room to grow in. I had many peculiar experiences in my log cabin school teaching, which was seldom more than three months in one place. Only once I found myself among New England people, and there I remained a year or more, fairly reveling in a return to the familiar, thrifty ways that seemed to me to shape a more comfortable style of living than any under the sun. Vine Lodge, so we named the cottage for its embowering honeysuckles, and its warm-hearted inmates, with my little white schoolhouse under the oaks, made one of the brightest of my western memories. Only a mile or two away from this pretty retreat, there was an edifice towards which I often looked with longing. It was a seminary for young women, probably at that time one of the best in the country, certainly second to none in the west. It had originated about a dozen years before, in a plan for Western Collegiate education, organized by Yale College graduates. It was thought that women, as well as men, ought to share in the benefits of such a plan, and the result was Monticello Seminary. The good man whose wealth had made the institution a possibility lived in the neighborhood. Its trustees were of the best type of pioneer manhood, and its pupils came from all parts of the South and West. Its principal... I wonder now that I could have lived so near her for a year without becoming acquainted with her. But her high local reputation as an intellectual woman inspired me with awe, and I was foolishly diffident. One day, however, upon the persuasion of my friends at Vine Lodge, who knew my wishes for a higher education, I went with them to call upon her. We talked about the matter which had been in my thoughts for so long, and she gave me not only a cordial but an urgent invitation to come and enroll myself as a student. There were arrangements for those who could not incur the current expenses, to meet them by doing part of the domestic work, 
and of these I gladly availed myself. The stately limestone edifice, standing in the midst of an original growth of forest trees, two or three miles from the Mississippi River, became my home, my student home, for three years. The benefits of those three years I have been reaping ever since. I trust not altogether selfishly. It was always my desire and my ambition as a teacher to help my pupils as my teachers had helped me. The course of study at Monticello Seminary was the broadest, the most college-like that I have ever known, and I have had experience since in several institutions of the kind. The study of medieval and modern history, and of the history of modern philosophy especially, opened new vistas to me. In these our principal was also our teacher, and her method was to show us the tendencies of thought, to put our minds into the great current of human affairs, leaving us to collect details as we could, then or afterward. We came thus to feel that these were lifelong studies, as indeed they were. The course was somewhat elective, but her advice to me was not to admit anything because I did not like it. I had a natural distaste for mathematics, and my recollections of my struggles with trigonometry and conic sections are not altogether those of a conquering heroine, but my teacher told me that my mind had need of just that exact sort of discipline, and I think she was right. A habit of indiscriminate, unsystemized reading, such as I had fallen into, is entirely foreign to the scholarly habit of mind. Attention is the secret of real acquirement. But it was months before I could command my own attention, even when I was interested in the subject I was examining. It seemed as if all the pages of all the books I had ever read were turning themselves over between me and this one page that I wanted to understand. I found that mere reading does not by any means make a student. It was more to me to come into communication with my wise teacher as a friend than even to receive the wisdom she had to impart. She was dignified and reticent, but beneath her reserve, as is often the case, was a sealed fountain of sympathy which one who has the key could easily unlock. Thinking of her nobleness of character, her piety, her learning, her power and her sweetness, it seems to me as if I had once had a Christian Zenobia or Hypatia for my teacher. We speak with odd tenderness of our unseen guardian angels, but have we not all had our guiding angels, who came to us in visible forms, and recognized or unknown, kept beside us on our difficult path until they had done for us all they could? It seems to me as if one had succeeded another by my side all through the years, always some one whose influence made my heart stronger and my way clearer, though sometimes it has been only a little child that came and laid its hand into my hand as if I were its guide, instead of its being mine. My dear and honored lady principal was surely one of my strong guiding angels, sent to meet me as I went to meet her upon my life road, just at the point where I most needed her. For the one great thing she gave her pupils, scope, often quite left out of a woman's education, I especially thank her. The true education is to go on forever, but how can there be any hopeful going on without outlook? And having an infinite outlook, how can progress ever cease? It was worth while for me to go to those western prairies, if only for the broader mental view that opened upon me in my pupilage there. During my first year at the seminary, I was appointed teacher of the preparatory department, a separate school of thirty or forty girls, with the opportunity to go on with my studies at the same time. It was a little hard, but I was very glad to do it, as I was unwilling to receive an education without rendering an equivalent, and I did not wish to incur a debt. I believe that the postponement of these maturer studies to my early womanhood, after I had worked and taught, was a benefit to me. I had found out some of my special ignorances, 
what the things were which I almost needed to know. I had learned that the book knowledge I so much craved was not itself education, and not even culture, but only a help, an adjunct to both. As I studied more earnestly, I cared for fewer books, but those few made themselves indispensable. It still seems to me that in the Lowell Mills, and in my log cabin schoolhouse on the western prairies, I received the best part of my early education. The great advantage of a seminary course to me was that under my broad-minded principle I learned what education really is, the penetrating deeper and rising higher into life, as well as making continually wider explorations, the rounding of the whole human being out of its nebulous elements into form, as planets and suns are rounded, until they give out safe and steady light. This makes the process an infinite one, not possible to be completed at any school. Returning from the West immediately after my graduation, I was for ten years or so a teacher of young girls in seminaries, much like my own alma mater. The best result to me of that experience has been the friendship of my pupils, a happiness which must last as long as life itself. A book must end somewhere, and the natural boundary of this narrative is drawn with my leaving New England for the West. I was to outline the story of my youth for the young, though I think many a one among them might tell a story far more interesting than mine. The most beautiful lives seldom find their way into print. Perhaps the most beautiful part of any life never does. I should like to flatter myself so. I could not stay at the West. It was never really a home to me there, and my sojourn of six or seven years on the prairies only deepened my love and longing for the dear old state of Massachusetts. I came back in the summer of 1852, and the unwritten remainder of my sketch is chiefly that of a teacher's and writer's experience, regarding which latter, I will add, for the gratification of those who have desired them, a few personal particulars. While a student and teacher at the West, I was still writing, and much that I wrote was published. A poem printed in Sartain's magazine, sent there at the suggestion of the editor of The Lowell Offering, was the first for which I received remuneration. Five dollars. Several poems written for the manuscript school journal at Monticello Seminary are in the household collection of my verses, among them those entitled Eureka, Hand in Hand with Angels, and Psych at School. These, and various others written soon after, were printed in the National Era, in return for which a copy of the paper was sent me. Nothing further was asked or expected. The little song, Hannah Binding Shoes, written immediately after my return from the West, was a study from life, though not from any one life in my native town. It was brought into notice in a peculiar way, by my being accused of stealing it, by the editor of the magazine to which I had sent it with a request for the usual remuneration, if accepted. Accidentally or otherwise, this editor lost my note and signature, and then denounced me by name in a newspaper as a literary thiefist. Having printed the verses with a nom de plume in his magazine without my knowledge, it was awkward to have to come to my own defense, but the curious incident gave the song a wide circulation. I did not attempt writing for money until it became a necessity, when my health failed at teaching, although I should not long before then have liked to spend my whole time with my pen, could I have done so, but it was imperative that I should have an assured income, however small and every one who has tried it knows how uncertain a support one's pen is, unless it has become very famous indeed. My life as a teacher, however, I regard as part of my best preparation for whatever I have since written. 
I do not know, but I should recommend five or ten years of teaching as the most profitable apprenticeship for a young person who wishes to become an author. To be a good teacher implies self-discipline, and a book written without something of that sort of personal preparation cannot be a very valuable one. Success in writing may mean many different things. I do not know that I have ever reached it, except in the sense of liking better and better to write, and of finding expression easier. It is something to have won the privilege of going on. Sympathy and recognition are worth a great deal. The power to touch human beings inwardly and nobly is worth far more. The hope of attaining to such results, if only occasionally, must be a writer's best inspiration. So far as successful publication goes, perhaps the first I considered so came when a poem of mine was accepted by the Atlantic Monthly. Its title was The Rose Enthroned and as the poet Lowell was at that time editing the magazine, I felt especially gratified. That and another poem, The Loyal Woman's No, written early in the War of the Rebellion, were each attributed to a different person among our prominent poets, the Atlantic at that time not giving authors signatures. Of course I knew the unlikeness. Nevertheless, those who made the mistake paid me an unintentional compliment. Compliments, however, are very cheap, and by no means signify success. I have always regarded it as better ambition to be a true woman than to become a successful writer. To be the second would never have seemed to me desirable without also being the first. In concluding, let me say to you, dear girls, for whom these pages have been written, that if I have learned anything by living, it is this, that the meaning of life is education, not through book knowledge alone, sometimes entirely without it. Education is growth, the development of our best possibilities from within outward, and it cannot be carried on as it should be except in a school, just such a school as we all find ourselves in, this world of human beings by whom we are surrounded. The beauty of belonging to this school is that we cannot learn anything in it by ourselves alone, but for and with our fellow pupils, the wide earth over. We can never expect promotion here, except by taking our place among the lowest, and sharing their difficulties until they are removed, and we all become graduates together for a higher school. Humility, sympathy, helpfulness, and faith are the best teachers in this great university, and none of us are well educated who do not accept their training. The real satisfaction of living is, and must forever be, the education of all for each, and of each for all. So let us all try together to be good and faithful women, and not care too much for what the world may think of us or our abilities. My little story is not a remarkable one, for I have never attempted remarkable things, in the words of one of our honored elder writers, given in reply to a youthful aspirant who had asked for some points of her literary career, I never had a career. End of chapter 12. Recording by Amelia Shantarot-Wong. End of A New England Girlhood. Outlined from memory by Lucy Larkham.